0: The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. We would turn to Revelation 22. We'll be there in a few moments. Revelation, chapter 22. It's wonderful to be with everyone this morning. It's wonderful to see some visitors with us. You are our honored guest and. We always love to see visitors, but especially it's a blessing when some of our own are out of town um, and you fill that void, and, and we're so blessed to have you with us and encouraged by your participation. We hope that you have been encouraged as well and that the worship has been edifying and above all that it's pleasing to God. I hope that our study this morning will be of benefit and will be encouraging to you and we we pray that all things, of course, are done in accordance with God's words. So in a sermon, um, let us test all things and, and turn to the scriptures to find out whether these things are so. In Revelation 22 and verse 16, we read a, a name or a title or a description given um, Jesus, the Son of God, by himself. In John's revelation, toward its end, uh, Christ reveals himself saying, I Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. Then he calls himself the bright and morning star. It's been said before, and as a saying I think is fairly familiar, that every name that he wears, Jesus, is a blessing that he shares. And so it's always beneficial, I think, to look at a name or a title or description given the Son of God to to see the the multifaceted blessing that he gives to us and and all that he does and all that he is and all he continues to be here he is called by himself through the revelation of John's vision as the bright and morning star the international standard bible encyclopedia explains what is a reference of this and it says as the eastern horizon began to brighten toward the dawn shepherds would especially note what stars were the last to rise before their shining was drowned and the growing light of day. These, the last stars to appear in the east before sunrise, were the morning stars, the heralds of the sun. The Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary says that the planet Venus appears as the morning star at dawn. Albert Barnes and other scholars agree with this. He comments about the morning star and says that the morning star is that bright planet Venus, which at some seasons of the year appears so beautifully in the east, leading on the morning, the harbinger of the day, it appears as the darkness passes away. It is an indication that morning comes. It is intermingled with the rays, first rays of the light of the sun. It seems to be a herald to announce the coming of that glorious luminary. And it is, as we see the description of it, one of the brightest of the stars. I remember learning um, as a boy that those stars that kind of stand out from the rest of the stars when we look into the night sky are often just planets that are in the distance. Now, scientifically, I couldn't explain to you what that is. My guess would be that planets are closer than stars, and even though they're reflecting the light of the sun, they appear brighter in the sky. Be that as it may, whatever the the scientific case may be, those planets are often outshining the stars. And so not only is this bright and morning star that which continues to shine in the midst of The dawn of a new day and brings in that new day but it outshines all the rest of the stars it is one that is brighter and more uh, radiant than the others and figuratively what this indicates and we'll see this hopefully in the lesson is is brightness and splendor in a figurative way especially in regard to the magnitude of who Jesus is the greatest man to ever live the king of kings the lord of lords and the one who brings hope but It certainly has that connotation of hope, and I think that we consider it, as the Bible describes who Jesus is as the bright and morning star, there are powerful and encouraging lessons to be taken from this. I would suggest to you that one of the first lessons that we can learn by the very context and the description of Jesus as the bright and morning star in Revelation 22 and verse 16 is the transcendent splendor of Christ's kingship. In other words, as we'll note, he is king of kings. He There's no other king that has ever come close to who Christ is. He is transcendent. He outshines them all. And so bear with me as we we go through this first part, and then we'll, we'll make application to the description of Jesus as the bright and morning star as it relates to his kingship, namely as the king of kings. Consider the greatly anticipated kingdom of prophecy. In the Old Testament, this is one of the main topics of prophecy that we read about, and obviously it has to do with the Messiah, the messianic kingdom. And this was something, even though the Jews had a misunderstanding of it in its very nature as it pertained to a spiritual kingdom, and they thought it to be a physical kingdom, nevertheless, they greatly anticipated it. It was what they were looking forward to, not just the coming of the Messiah, but the meaning that came with the Messiah, that there would be a transcendent kingdom that would be established of... One of many places we read of this is in Isaiah. And in Isaiah 1, after describing the sinfulness of the nation of Israel and and how they had allowed injustice to prevail and idolatry was definitely the description of the people of God at that time. Verse 27 of Isaiah 1, after talking about all of that negative, he leads to a positive. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. Those who turn away from these things, and that is the remnant we read of in fulfillment in the New Testament, shall be saved. There will be righteousness, there will be justice, and it came with that kingdom of prophecy. And we see that in the very next chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Isaiah. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, "Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord's house, of of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob." He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore. I want us to consider especially the context of this very prophecy. We demonstrated just very briefly that chapter 1 spoke about how essentially that nation of God was turned against Him. They had gone after idolatry and they were actually supporting injustice and they were supporting even murderers were in their midst, we read in chapter 1. Instead of condemning the murderers, they were actually They got off scot-free. Justice was no longer within the nation of Israel. They were completely opposed in the most fundamental ways to God, to the extent of turning to false gods. And so they were, as we described in this morning's Bible class, enemies of God. But here is a time where those who are penitent will be made righteous. There will be justice. It will prevail. There will be renewal and there will be salvation. And it would come with this kingdom of prophecy. Consider that description in verse 4 when he says they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. They were opposed to God and that weaponry seems to describe that idea of them being opposed to God and and now they're actually going to be working for God. They're going to be plowing, they're going to be sowing, they're going to be pruning. They are those who are now on God's side and it would be ultimately as they are partakers of this messianic kingdom and it was greatly anticipated because of the the deliverance that comes with it and it's quite obvious by our knowledge of the scriptures that this is a spiritual deliverance but even more than that it would come with great dominance and daniel chapter 2 in that description of the image of nebuchadnezzar and the fulfillment or the 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 interpretation of that particular dream by Daniel when he's talking about that being the kingdom of God that would come. It says that in the days of those kings in Daniel 2 and verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Here's a context of four kingdoms who were of world dominance, but they all fell. The greatest was Babylon and one came after it was still was a world empire, even though it paled in comparison to the, the greatness of Babylon, and it failed as well. The Medo-Persian Empire, then the Grecian Empire, and then the Roman world empire as we know it when the Gospels are introduced is in effect, yet the kingdom of God would dash into pieces, destroy all these kings. There would never be another world empire is essentially what Daniel is prophesying about. It will never be destroyed. It will be world dominant. So they not only anticipated the deliverance in this messianic kingdom, but the dominance of this messianic kingdom. But we know that unfortunately, they had a misguided perspective of this. They thought of it in a very physical way. The current oppression that they were under when the New Testament is written is the Roman oppression of that world empire. And so their view of the Messiah is that the Messiah would come and deliver them from that Roman oppression, set up a physical kingdom that would completely dominate all other kingdoms and it would be established on earth forever. And we see that in one of many places in John the sixth chapter. Remember when Jesus fed those 5,000, not including men or not including women and children. And then those men, when they had seen the sign in John chapter six and verse 14, that Jesus did said, truly The prophet who is to come into the world. This is the prophet. This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And that's obviously a messianic reference. I think we know that. But notice verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. They saw a significance to that, but they failed to see the greater significance to it. They looked in a physical way that he would be a physical king But it's quite obvious by Scripture's revelation that the kingdom would be spiritual. And Jesus kind of intimated that in John 6. In verse 26, when they eventually found him, He told them, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set a seal on him. Son of Man is another Messianic term. So he says, I am who you think I am, but I'm not bringing what you think I'm bringing. And so they they looked at him as this messianic king, as the one who had set up this eternal kingdom, but they looked at that in a physical way, and he said, wait a second, I don't come to bring physical deliverance from physical oppression, not from this Roman oppression. The greatest oppression that you're subject to is the oppression of sin and spiritual death which it brings. So don't labor for this food which endures for just a little while but that which endures to everlasting life the greatest depression was sin and jesus came To set up a spiritual kingdom to deliver men from their sins now that is connected To this idea of jesus being the bright and morning star Notice the description. He gives of himself that goes along with it He said I am the root and offspring of david the bright and morning star The root and the offspring of david is a messianic reference The Messiah would come through the lineage of David and his reign would be on the Davidic throne. He says, though, he's the root of David. It reminds us, I think, of Matthew, the 22nd chapter, when he shows that the Pharisees are mistaken in thinking that the Messiah was simply a man come through the lineage of David. He said, what do you think about the Christ in Matthew 22 and verse 42? And they said, the son of David, whose son is he? The son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he son? And he's not saying you're wrong in that he is the son of David. He's saying you're wrong in this idea that he is simply the son of David. They rejected him because he claimed to be deity. He claimed to be the son of God. But what he's showing here is that He's not just of the lineage of David, which would suggest David's greater than him, but David called him Lord. That's obviously a reference to deity, to God, that he was before David. He's the root of David. David comes from him. He's the source of David, but he's also the offspring of David. He is David's son after the flesh. In Romans, the first chapter in verse three, it says concerning Jesus Christ our Lord he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh but declared to be the son of power or the son of God with power by the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead in Acts chapter 2 Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost says that indeed Jesus was the seed of David but he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ verse 31 of Acts 2 that his soul was not left in Hades nor did his flesh see corruption And this Jesus God has raised up, which we are all witnesses. He is the root of David. David comes from him, but he's also the offspring of David. So he is that Messiah who is to come, but he's not just a man. He is the son of God who is to come. Root and offspring of David speak to his being that son of God. We read of in Isaiah, the ninth chapter unto us, a child is born and he would reign on David's throne. The government would be upon his shoulders he pairs that up with the fact that he is the bright and morning star. Consider that in Old Testament prophecy, the use of stars in figurative language and prophetic language often have reference to kings and kingdoms and governments. I think we see an example of that in Isaiah 13 and verse 1, the burden against Babylon which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. In verses 9 and 10, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord uh, comes cruel and both anger and fierce wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. And this prophecy of an oppression of the king of Babylon and Babylon as a nation says the stars will not shine anymore. He's talking about that nation, that empire is not going to be outshining anymore. In Ezekiel 32, in verse 2, speaking of the lamentation for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in verses 6 through 8, it says, I will also water the land with the flow of your blood, even to the mountains and the riverbeds will be full of you. When I put out your light, I will cover the heavens and make it, its stars dark. I will cover the sun With a cloud and the moon shall not give her light. The star or the radiance of Egypt would be put out. Furthermore, in Isaiah 14, also considering Babylon and especially the Babylonian king, he is described as a star himself. In Isaiah 14 and verse 12, consider the text here as it reads. I think I'm a little behind on my. Yes, here it is. Isaiah 14 and verse 12, speaking of the king of Babylon, he says, How how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you were cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought low or brought down to Sheol. To the lowest depths of the pit notice it says that he will ascend above the heights of the cloud he will ascend above the stars and exalt his throne above the stars of god but he himself in verse 12 is called lucifer and that's not a description or a reference to satan as is commonly misunderstood in the world today lucifer is the greek word hellel or the hebrew word Hallel, and it literally means the morning star and so he calls the king of Babylon the morning star, but then he says, How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. He's saying, You were transcendent. You were king of kings. And we read of that concerning Babylon as a world empire. And the king was greater than any other kings. He outshined all others. But because of his pride, his arrogance, and his sin, and his unrighteousness, he would be brought low. And so really, he is called the morning star in jest and in mockery. You think you shine bright, but you shall be put out. You think you're better than all the nations. You think that you're better than God himself, but you will be brought low. Now consider that as it pertains to Jesus being the bright and morning star. It's quite obvious that with the root and offspring of David, that's a reference to Jesus' messiahship and kingship. He will sit on the throne of David, reign as king. But also as the bright and morning star, he will be king of kings. He'll outshine them all. He'll be the greatest of all in his throne and his kingdom will absolutely be eternal. It will never come to an end. King of Babylon came to an end. King of Egypt came to an end. The median Persian Empire came to an end. The Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Caesars are no more. But Jesus is still king. And surely he outshines them all. Consider that in regard to his authority and his dominance as king. Matthew 28 and verse 18, Jesus himself said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so where you have this idea of a world empire, it's the idea of the authority of that king or that sovereign. It stretches to the ends of the earth as we know it, and there's no such king anymore. There is no world empire anymore. Every time since the Roman Empire that someone has tried to dominate the world, they failed because in Daniel 2 it is prophesied that the only world empire or world kingdom, universal kingdom, would be the kingdom of God. And here's Jesus with all authority in heaven and on earth, comprehensive. In Acts 2, it shows that in a fulfilled way. Verse 34 in Peter's sermon, he says, David did not ascend into heavens, but he says of himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is reigning above all. He's in complete control And you should be subject to him. He certainly is your Lord. He certainly is your king. You're just not submitting to him is the message. And that's why they said, what shall we do? What do I do to come under his authority? What do I do to submit myself to him? Because he has all power both to save and to destroy. He is completely dominant. He is certainly king of kings. In Revelation 1 and verse 5, it says that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth in the 17th chapter of revelation in verse 14 it calls him lord of lords and king of kings but you know with a world empire like babylon with a world empire like you know, persia and greece and especially something familiar to us is the oppression under the roman empire especially that the christians had to endure with great power also comes great temptation to use that for a negative way. I don't want there ever to be another world empire, and I can rest knowing that God prophesied that there never will be a world empire, just the kingdom of God and its dominance. Because when a man reigns, and all his sinfulness and his susceptibility to sin, evil will come when he reigns in that way, but not so with the king of kings, not so with the bright and morning star. We notice from the description at the beginning of the lesson that this concept of the morning star has a connotation of hope to it. It is the herald of the sun, the harbinger of the day. You have a bad day, you go to sleep, and you wake up and you see that morning star, you know a new day is coming and there's hope. And so it is with the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He does not use his authority for oppression, but for salvation, for deliverance. He does not use his authority in a negative way, but in a positive way to lead us away from sin and to righteousness. Notice in Acts 3 and verse 18, to that crowd that gathered after the healing of the lame man, Peter said, those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Notice, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He's been put at the right hand of the throne of God, but not just to send you to hell. If you don't obey him, he will, but for times of refreshing, it's for your benefit. And he goes on in verse twenty-four or thirty-four, excuse me, twenty-five of Acts three. He says, You are the sons of the prophet, prophets, and the covenant which God made with your father, Saint Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning you. Uh, turning away every one of you from your iniquities. You crucify him, but now he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, not to get back at you, but to deliver you from your sins, to grant you repentance. Malachi, the fourth chapter in verse 2, prophecy of the Messiah says, to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. He indeed is the bright morning star in regard to the dominance of his kingship, of the splendor of his kingship, of the transcendence of his kingship, but also the hope that he brought when he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. But consider how this king reigns. And I think that the bright and morning star also has a connotation to it of the guiding light of of his word. And we'll notice why in a minute. But consider how he is king of kings, how he has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is king and he reigns and he dominates through his word. And John 18 in the midst of Pilate Pilate asked in the trial of Jesus, are you a king then? And Jesus said, you say rightly that I am a king. But he already said this kingdom he has is not of this world. For this cause I was born and for this cause I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. If you're a king, Jesus, people are going to follow you because you actually have authority. But he says only those who hear my truth and follow my truth are of my kingdom." He reigns through truth. And it's connected, of course, with the deliverance from the oppression of sin. In John chapter 8 and verse 31, when he tells the Jews there, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The deliverance I bring is not physical, it's spiritual, but you only get that spiritual deliverance through my reign as dominant king if you submit to my rule in truth. And that's why we read in Colossians 3.17 that whatever we do in word or deed, we are to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is by his authority as king, as preeminent one, the sovereign one. Because only in that way can we have deliverance. In 2 Peter chapter 1, this idea of the morning star, which we already know Jesus identifies as himself, is connected with his truth. In 2 Peter 1 and verse 19, Peter writes that we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. We're speaking of the prophetic word, inspired word of God. And he says, you do well to heed that until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What does that mean until the day dawns and morning star rises in your hearts? Notice a few things. Firstly, that this prophetic word is not simply just a telling of the future, a prediction of a future event that is sure to come. That's not what prophecy means. That's part of what prophecy can mean. But prophecy just means inspired speaking. They're a mouthpiece of God, a prophet is. And so the things they spoke were the word of God. And he's not referring to any just simply and merely those Old Testament scriptures that spoke of future events. He's speaking of the Old Testament scriptures, period. That's the prophetic word, the inspired Old Testament. It includes the apostles' doctrine. Notice chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2 of Second Peter. He says, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure mind's by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior. He puts himself on even plain with the prophets of old. Our word is just as much from God as their word, and it's because of what inspiration means. That that prophecy of Scripture, chapter 1 and verse 20, is of no private interpretation because it never came from the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God is using them as his pen to reveal his truths. It's God's word, not theirs. They're just the instruments. And their word is as good as the prophets of old. And he says, you better well take heed to that prophetic word as a light that shines in a dark place. We know that that's the way that God's word works. That's why it's so important. This was why the apostle Paul was sent in his ministry. In verse 18 of Acts 26, he explains... To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There is spiritual darkness. It's the darkness of of sin and of ignorance, of error. And the word of God preached by those inspired men was to turn people from that spiritual darkness to the spiritual light. Psalm 119 and verse 110 says that... um, Uh, that is the wrong one. But your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We know that scripture. For some reason, it's escaping me and I put the wrong thing down. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We know that God's word is indeed that which enlightens us and lights our way. Jesus calls himself that very word. In John chapter one and verse one, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. But he goes on to describe himself as being the one with life, verse 4, and the life was the light of men. And in verse 9, John explains that that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He's the word of God, which enlightens man through the truth. It turns them from darkness to light. In chapter 14, and verse 6, he explains, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He lights the path to the Father. Through the truth, he calls himself the truth. And in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, that's connected with the fact that all things that pertain to life and godliness are given to us through the knowledge of him. That's Jesus who called us by glory and virtue. Why? Because he is that word, he is that light, he is the way, the truth, and the life. This is especially important in Second Peter's context. Because there were those who were teaching contrary to the word of God. They're false teachers. In chapter 2 and verse 1 of Second Peter, he warns that there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. In verses 18 and 19, he further warns that they speak swelling words of emptiness and they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, those who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. And that's when he says in chapter 3 and verses 1 through 3, I'm writing to you to remind you, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. And what they're especially going to do is deny the prophecy, the word of God that says Jesus is coming in the end. So we consider that in light of the verses of Second Peter 1 verses 19 through 21. There are false teachers among you. They're saying things contrary to the Word of God. And what that is doing is it's murking your mind, it's causing darkness, and it will prevail if you don't give heed to the Word of God. And he says, in addition to what is more sure than his eyewitness testimony of Jesus' majesty, which solidifies the understanding that Christ will appear again in glory, and that's especially what is being denied by the false teachers there. Not only does that confirm that our word is true, but the prophetic word is even more sure. We so have the prophetic word confirmed. That word confirmed is just a meaning of stable. He's saying that it's it's not confirmed by the eyewitness testimony. He's saying in addition to the eyewitness testimony, what is even more sure than that, what makes you more confident... And the things we spoke to you that now the false teachers are denying and teaching you error is the very word that is inspired of God. And you would do well to heed that as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. He's saying take heed to the inspired prophetic word so that this darkness is overwhelmed by the light of truth and these false teachers can't take advantage of you. You can overcome them as 1 John 4 talks about. Because... The one who is of God has overcome the world by their faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But he says that until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. It's obviously this knowledge of Jesus that comes through his word. There's a connection there of Jesus dwelling in our hearts and the light dwelling in our hearts. And we made that connection of the light through his word. And he's saying that Jesus arises in your hearts in the simple idea of his word being in you and you taking heed to that people talk about jesus being in their hearts and living in them and i feel christ in me but they're disobedient to his word it's impossible to have christ living in you except that we're submitting to his word the light is in our heart when we study god's word and obey it the apostle paul put it in this way in galatians 2 and verse 20 i've been crucified with christ it is no longer i who live but christ lives in me He's not saying Christ is actually in him. He's not saying Christ is actually in his heart, even though Christ is in his heart. He's talking about the fact that he lives in him through the following of his word. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He said it is no longer I who live, but the life that I live. And he's not contradicting himself. He's saying that I'm letting Jesus as king of kings control my life. And the way he does that. Is through the word. He lives by faith in the Son of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Jesus is the bright and morning star is in our hearts through the light of truth that He reveals to us. And it ultimately gives us hope of eternal day. Back in Revelation 22 and verse 16, we would do well to heed the context. When He calls Himself the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star, it's in the context and concluding that particular revelation of the future judgment of the day of the Lord and how it is coming. In the first five verses, he sees a very positive scene which includes the throne of God. And at the throne of God is the river of life, the tree of life. There are the servants of God there. And it's a wonderful hope that the servants of God have because there's not going to be any night anymore, but eternal day and they'll reign forever. But notice the warning of verse 7 of Revelation 22. He says, behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. By quickly, he does not mean his return is imminent. It's about to happen. He's saying that it will be suddenly, and the scripture uses it in that way many times, saying it's going to be sudden. It's going to be as a thief in the night as we read elsewhere. You're not going to have any warning. It's just going to happen. And so you need to keep the words of this book, keep the words of this prophecy, keep the word of God, period. He goes on to do that as a warning In verse 12, beginning of chapter 22, he says once again, Behold, I am coming quickly. It's sudden. It's not going to have warning. And he's coming with a reward to give to everyone according to his work. Rewards are often a positive thing, but not always. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He says, Blessed are they who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates of the city. But outside, they don't get in outsider dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie and that's when he says he's the bride and morning star and gives an invitation in verse 17 the spirit and the bride say come and let him who says here say come and let him who thirsts come whoever desires let him take the water of life freely jesus is coming it'll be sudden and he's going to judge the world and this is how he's going to judge the world, obviously with his word. So those who do his commandments and keep his commandments, they have a right to that tree of life, the blessing of verses 1 through 5. But those who do not keep his commandments, those who are described in verses in verse 15, the dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie, that is what is contrary to truth. Those people, the reward for them is not the tree of life. It's eternal death. It's the lake of, of fire and brimstone that is described so vividly in the book of Revelation. So he says, to escape that, come. Spirit and the bride say, come. Anyone who has that desire to take of that water of life, they can take freely. And so there's a great warning and there's a, a, a great danger that is discussed in Revelation 22. It's a, it's a scary scene, really, but there's also great hope. And that's what he says about himself, the bright and morning star. He's the harbinger of the day. He brings in eternal day. In verse 5 of this same chapter, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Eternal day, no night there. And that's when Jesus says, I'm the bright and morning star. When I come in judgment, those who have kept my commandments will not see me as the one who's going to send them to hell where there's eternal darkness. No, they see that as if a shepherd saw a morning star. Day is coming. And they look forward to that. It's certainly something that we need to understand comes from endurance. We don't get to see the bright and morning star as a harbinger of eternal day, but as the bringer of eternal death and judgment. We've got to endure in order to receive that. In Revelation 2, speaking to the church in Thyatira, And the fact that they had gone after the doctrine of Jezebel and are committing all kinds of immorality, he says that as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what I have until I come. And he overcomes and keeps my works until the end. To him, I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed into pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And notice, and I will give him the morning star. morning star is obviously Jesus, but it's obvious that that's a reference to the hope and the blessedness of eternal day. The ones who endure, the ones who do not give in to the powers of Satan, the ones who persist and endure in keeping the word of God and following in works of obedience toward his commands, they will receive the bright and morning star. And so when Revelation 22 is intimidating and scary for some, it's a message of hope. And that's what Revelation is about. You're being oppressed by the Roman government is essentially what's going on here. And there's a God king that's ruling over you and he's destroying and killing the lives of Christians. But if you endure, if you persist, if you're faithful to the point of death, Revelation 2 and verse 10, you will receive the crown of life and and God will ensure victory. Jesus Christ has already overcome, so you will overcome as well. And that's why we can read Revelation, even though we don't live in the time it's referring to, with great hope because he's talking about the ultimate victory in Christ. The bright and morning star is coming and he's coming with eternal day. And that's why John ends this book in this way. Revelation 22 in verse 20. He says, he who testifies these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so come Lord Jesus. Are we able to pray that prayer? Are we able to say to God, please come quickly. As is often the case, we see the attitude of the apostle Paul and obviously hear the revelation from John. Even so come Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Can we pray that prayer? We can't if we're at enmity with Him. We can't if we're in sin because the coming of that day means utter destruction for those who are not in fellowship with God. But those who are submitting to the King of Kings, those who are following the light of truth, those who have a relationship with God through Christ, see Him as the bright and morning star. and He's bringing in eternal day. I can't wait till that day. Neither can any other faithful Christian. It is such a blessing that He wears that description, that name, Of the bright and morning star. Because he shines light for us to follow. He'll get us to heaven. And he is indeed the indication. Of a blessed hope of eternal day. And everyone can have that blessing. Remember in verse 17. The invitation to anyone. Who desires to take of the water of life freely. The spirit and the bride say come. And this is why at the end of every sermon. I offer an invitation. And many others offer invitations. At the end of every time members of the church meet because he's coming quickly it's going to be sudden as a thief in the night second peter 3 and verse 10 among other places says meaning we won't have warning it'll just happen and it'll be too late and so while you have time now the long suffering of the lord is your salvation come and partake of the water of life by being baptized into christ for the remission of your sins and you'll rise up out of that water having that hope of eternal day. And when Jesus comes, it won't be a time where you say, like at the beginning of the revelation, mountains and hills, please fall on me. It'll be a time of rejoicing and glory and hope realized. And it'll be the beginning of eternity with God. But you've got to become a partaker of Christ before then. And so we extend the invitation to you. If you have obeyed the gospel, but you've fallen short in some sense or a way, you're not following that light of truth any longer, you can turn back to it before it's everlastingly too late. And if we can assist you in any spiritual way, we invite you to come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.